Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome, and thanks for joining us today. I recently spoke with Sarah Franklin about her new book, Biological Relatives, IVF, Stem Cells, and the Future of Kinship. This was produced by Duke University Press in 2013. Among the many reasons that I love this book was the way that it takes a broadly transdisciplinary approach to understanding a really fascinating case study in science studies, and that is IVF, in vitro fertilization, and related stem cell technologies. In the course of the book, what Franklin does is she treats simultaneously the kind of work that's done by scientists in laboratories, the kind of work that's done by philosophers, by historians, by anthropologists, the work that's done by artists, by patients, by clinical doctors, and the work not just of generating ideas and generating egg technologies, but also generating pipettes, generating all different sorts of tools and images as part of the story of, and as, as integral to understanding the story of IVF and why it matters. Over the course of the book, you see, and you'll hear about this in the conversation to come, that not only does it do the kind of work that changes the way we think about biology, but it also changes the way we think about what counts as a technology, as a tool. And it, at least for me, made me think of the relevance of the work of Marx, the work of Derrida, and also the work of a whole bunch of anthropologists as being really now central to how I think about tools and instruments and technologies in a really new way. So I really enjoyed the book, as I'm sure is clear just from these comments. It was really a pleasure to talk with Sarah Franklin about it, and I hope you enjoyed the interview as much as I did. We're here today to talk with Sarah Franklin about her new book, Biological Relatives, IVF, Stem Cells, and the Future of Kinship. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Sarah, and thanks very, very much for negotiating the time difference and for making time to talk with me today. Thanks, Carla. My pleasure. So, Sarah, could you start us off by saying a little bit about yourself and your background, and specifically, how did you come to this field that is broadly defined as science studies? What brought you here as an academic pursuit? Uh, well, I started out in um, women's studies and anthropology at Smith College, um, and I then did a um, MA in women's studies in the United Kingdom, um, and I then came back to the U.S. to begin to do work in anthropology on um, reproduction and reproduction-related issues. Um Although the topic I chose, which was to do an ethnography of IVF, um, was a little bit um, too um, sort of modern and technological. So I ended up doing a, a more interdisciplinary PhD in, in, in England at the Birmingham Centre for Contemporary Cultural Studies, where I was part of one of the first groups to do a kind of cultural analysis of science within um, CCCS, which was um, an important school um, at Birmingham, 
uh, doing cultural studies. And so, you know, that was a time, the mid-1980s, of a lot of interesting changes in reproductive politics, and it was obviously a time of a lot of very interesting changes in terms of reproductive technology, and I've basically worked on that issue um, ever since. Um, and so, um, actually, in some ways, biological relatives gave me the opportunity to look back on, um, you know, 30 years of studying IVF. Great. So the book, um, as you've mentioned, looks at IVF or in vitro fertilization if, um, for listeners who may not have heard that terminology and the worlds that it creates and inhabits as a frame to look at the notion of biological relativity. And we'll talk about that a little bit um, in the course of the conversation, I'm sure, to look at the changing relationships and notions of biology and technology and to look at notions of kinship among many, many other things. So it's an extraordinarily rich study and will only get to some, I'm sure, of the many, many kinds of work that the book does, but we'll definitely get to um, at least some of that. So you've already spoken a little bit about how you came to this topic. And in fact, it sounds like you began um, really in many ways looking at this topic. But how um, did you come to the point when you did of deciding to write a book length monograph on this and specifically writing a book length monograph that is this object that looks like this, that has this sort of a scope? Yeah. Um, well, that's a good question. And I did write my PhD on in vitro fertilization in, in part because I felt it was important to find out more about um, what women and couples who are using it expect from the technology and how they experience the technology and um, what were their rationales really for for using this new um, means of technologically assisted conception? And so I wrote my first book about IVF in the early 1990s. Um, it was published in 1997, called Embodied Progress: A Cultural Account of Assisted Conception. And at that time, I think it was a little unclear what was going to happen to IVF. Its success rates weren't really that great. Um, it was reasonably controversial. It was still really an exceptional way to go about um, having children. And one of the really surprising things about IVF from the late 1980s, early 1990s onwards is how incredibly quickly it became very popular and um, how rapidly it expanded um, both geographically and also technologically, how many other applications came to be based on IVF. And then, you know, with the development of um, somatic cell nuclear transfer and, and cloning and stem cells and all of the kind of brave new biology projects of the early 21st century, it became clear that um, the story of IVF was, in some ways, very paradoxical because, on the one hand, it had been naturalized so quickly, normalized <clears throat> so quickly, and popularized so quickly. But on the other hand, it had changed so much, and it had, in in many ways, become more radical um, while it was becoming more normal. Great. Now, as we get into the book, um, you're going to proceed in a series of chapters, or you do proceed in the book in, this, in a series of chapters, to explore different aspects of this phenomenon and to explore it in different ways. And so some of the chapters engage um, a more kind of 
historical archival approach with archive um, defined and determined broadly. Some of them are based on a kind of deep ethnographic approach within an IVF lab um, or a stem cell research lab. And some of them explore the work of um, kind of uh, take a broadly historiographical approach and or go into um, in great detail or in great depth, rather, some of the notions, the philosophical notions and the philosophers and conceptual theorists who ground and who have undergirded the kinds of concepts um, that are or that inhabit the book and that enliven the book. But to begin with, in the introduction, you set out a kind of framing that recurs throughout many of the chapters. And this is a framing that's offered in terms of the rubric of curiosity, right? Curiouser and curiouser. You talk about IVF early in the book as, I think as you put it, a looking glass through which we see ourselves. And this trope of the looking glass, specifically in the context of Alice, um, Alice who some listeners might know um, from Wonderland, others might know from Through the Looking Glass, Alice appears here um, as a kind of touchstone for thinking about IVF in terms of what you call curiouser and curiouser, right? So can you maybe start us off um, as we now get into the book by talking about this framing, the framing of IVF in terms of a looking glass and in terms of something that is, as you put it, curiouser and curiouser. How are you thinking about this in terms of the larger um, goals and arguments of the book? Well, um, I think a lot of people in science and technology studies will be familiar with um, the work of Raymond Williams, um, and in particular his claim in his famous book on television um, that the question of technology is one of the least well understood uh, topics in all of social science. Um, and there's a reason for this, he says. Um, he says the reason that technology is so poorly understood is because we already think we know what its impact has been. So when it comes to something like television, we already assume that it's had an impact and that we can understand the impact and study the impact and so forth. Um, but this leads us in a bit of a loop because even the impact model itself, you know, an analogy drawn from physics to describe a collision doesn't really necessarily reveal very much about the complexity of social interactions that we might describe as technological change. So I'm really interested in this book and using IVF as a way to defamiliarize how we think about technology. And and I am approaching IVF is something that we think we know what it is. We think it's obvious what it is. It's a way for people who can't have children to get technological assistance in order to have them. But I argue in the book that the more carefully we look at IVF, the more carefully we look at its history, the more carefully we looked at the ethnography on it, the more carefully we listen to people who are talking about it, whether they're professionals who work with it or people who are undergoing it, the stranger it is. Um, so that during the very same period that IVF has become more natural, more normal, or as Stuart Brand says, more regular, um, or even a model of how technology becomes naturalized, during that very same period from the 1980s until now, um, I argue IVF has in many ways also become stranger and stranger or even queerer and queerer. Um, as we go forward, what we see is a technology that has dramatically reshaped how we understand fertility, how we understand kinship, how we understand gender, how we understand reproduction. So this technology, which is frequently represented 
as something that's just like what would have happened anyway, or just like a biological process, on closer examination, turns out to be a technology that's actually changed what the biological means. Great. And one of the things that it helps us reframe and that it has changed, as you argue in the book, is also the notion of relativity. Um, The book title engages the notion of biological relativity. The introduction is called Relatively Biological. And throughout the book, you're using IVF to explore what you call the emergence of biological relativity. So since it does occupy such a prominent place early in the book, and it's such an important concept for us to understand as we proceed to get into the um, the nuts and bolts, more of the texture of the book in the later chapters, can you start us off um, here and in terms of our further exploration by talking a little bit about this concept, the concept of biological relativity? Um, what does this mean for you and what's important for us to understand about this notion um, in order for us to understand the kind of work that you're going to use it to do later on in the book. Yeah, well, this this is very much a book about how we understand biology, um, what we understand by the um, notion of being biological, what we understand by biological relatives, biological reproduction, etc. Um, and the argument is that in vitro fertilization far from being simply an imitation of a biological process is actually the introduction of a new relationship to technology that displaces the former um, naturalness of the biological and gives us instead a kind of hybrid of biology and technology. And, And this argument, of course, has been made by many people. I'm not the first person to make this argument. It's been made by Marilyn Strathairn. It's been made by Bruno Latour. It's been made by Paul Rabinow, Don Haraway. Many people have pointed to the um, implosion, displacement, whatever you want to call it, of the natural. But what I think is helpful about in vitro fertilization as a case study is that we can walk through that process um, in the context of this one particular technique. And we can really see how the very process of pursuing biological offspring, um, biological relatives, biological kin, as it were, has allowed us to see very explicitly a different role for technology um, in, in what it means to reproduce, what it means to create kinship, and so forth. And... Um, it does so by um, introducing a new model of conception, the model of conception in glass, the model of conception that is literally manipulated using tools. And so what we get is a point where we can't really tell in the context of an embryo in a petri dish where the biology begins and the technology ends or the other way around um you know you really can't separate out what's biological about that situation an embryo in a petri dish um and what's technological about it and so i want to suggest that because IVF is now 30 years old because there have been 5 million children born from IVF, because IVF has become a symbol in some ways of a different relationship to technology that we need to think very carefully about what kind of analogy 
it's presenting to us about origins, about relationships, and about technology as well. Um, so, so that's really the question I'm asking, as you said earlier, the question about what kind of mirror does RVF provide to look at ourselves? What kind of lens does it offer through which we might understand the biological differently? And, and how can we examine that from the point of view of both social science and science studies? Great. Now, terms like mirror and lens, these are just two of many, many terms that recur in the book that constellate around the importance of instruments and tools, instrumentality, and these ideas as they frame the way that, at least from the perspective of one reader, right? That's that's the perspective that I'll offer. But the way that these issues help us rethink not just um, the co-creation of new forms of biology and technology, but also the ways that these are imbricated in no of uh, instruments and tools and work and work with hands specifically. So as we move into the first chapter, you really set the stage for us to have a a really deep understanding of these issues by introducing the larger context of um, these issues as they come up in the Industrial Revolution and then are worked out in the work of Marx and Engels specifically. And so you talk here in this first chapter about the importance to the study of the work of Marx and Engels and specifically their ideas about the relationships between tools and hands. And hands are going to be recurring throughout um, the book as a really important touchstone for what's happening with IVF. So can you talk a little bit here about this notion of the tool, tools and hands early on, and how this motivates um, the kind of work that you're doing at this point early in the book? Well, um, I'm among the many people who think that we still have a lot to learn from Marx and Engels. Um, and, you know, now that we can read all their work online, um, and we can read different implications into his later work, Marx's later work in Capital. Um, I mean, I, I think I've always thought really that in some ways the question to ask right now about the biological sciences is less about biocapitalism um, as about biocapital. Um, because, you know, IVF is right now on the verge of becoming more substantially financialized, which will really mean the emergence of a kind of biocapital market, biocapitalist market that we haven't seen before. Um, but uh, in, in lots of my previous work on um, other reproductive technologies and on Dolly the Sheep, I'm very, very interested in this idea of how the biological is made. And um, I'm very interested in that for two reasons. First of all, I'm interested in talking to the people who are actually doing the making, which I think is a very important thing to do, and also observing very, very closely what they think they're doing with their tools. And one of the most interesting things that people are doing in stem cell labs right now is they're making tools out of biological elements. Um, Hannah Landecker has written about this very eloquently and I rely a lot on her work and the way that people are making tools out of other tools is not unusual. That's a very key feature of the history of technology but the way people are now making tools out of things like human embryos gives us a slightly different take on what a tool is. Um, when a human embryo becomes an important tool through which we try to understand the mechanisms of human tissue repair, for example, 
we have a form of tool use that we could describe as recursive. It's coming back to redefine how we understand what a tool is. It's coming back to present technology as a kind of identity. Um, and, and that question, in turn, the question of technology as identity, um, reciprocates very powerfully with the work of Foucault, the work of Judith Butler, and the work of the many theorists who have asked what it means to talk about technologies of self, technologies of sex, technologies of gender, technologies of identity, identity as a technology. And, and I think, again, if you look at in vitro fertilization, it's a very, very useful example through which to explore that link, the link between what we might describe as the meaning of a tool um, and our um, technologies of self. And, and this was Marx's key point. You know, he said, you can't just understand the history of tool or machine evolution in terms of a progressive accumulation of improvements. You have to understand them as products of history. You have to understand them as social products. You have to understand them as products of how people thought about themselves, not just how they thought about their tools or their work or their labor. Um, you know, he um, was a great observer of mechanics and apparatus and actually not such a great observer of gender, but um, we can forgive him for that. And um, he um, was very interested in mills and milling and why, for example, over millennia, mills and milling don't change. And then we get to the early industrial revolution and the early, um, you know, water wheel driven mills in the industrial revolution in the north of England. And all of a sudden we start to have this very, very, very rapid change, really, really rapid change um, in the scale of power applied to milling. Um, and uh, other machinery. And he said, you know, you can't just understand this as somebody figured out a better way to run a, you know, water wheel. You have to understand why the desire to run a water wheel so much more efficiently came about. And that was a social process, not a technological one. So we have to understand IVF, you know, not just in terms of the desire to have children per se, which isn't a simple desire to begin with, even though it's often thought of that way. You know, we have to understand why did the desire to have children in this way come about? Because that's a social question, not just a technological one. Right. And I will say, I um, forgive me if I start getting even less articulate than I started with, because this part of the book gets me really excited. You've completely convinced me from this part of the book um, that I need to go back and look again at Marx and Engels, because this is an aspect of that work that, at least for me, I just... It, you know, from my you know reading of this in graduate school, just completely glossed over, um, and so bringing this into the back into the discussion of tools and instruments and these aspects of the work was really exciting, and it was particularly exciting because you're talking in the book, um, at least for me, really but really exciting. My partner on the ride to work today had to listen to me talking about this for like 45 <laughs> minutes, and so um, I'm, I'm being completely genuine here, but it's exciting in part because the kinds of tools that come up in 
this part of the book are tools that include um, embryos um, and other sorts of biological, technological material, but also you have accounts of postdocs making their own pipettes, you know, and talking about the intricacies of the kind of tip to put on the pipette, how to mold it. And so there's this really beautifully textured artisanal culture that also comes out of this account. Um, And so that's what uh, maybe we can move to now. So part of the, uh, again, this comes out throughout the book, but one of the great things about every chapter of the book is that you were weaving together here um, not just a really careful consideration of these concepts as they come up in the work of other historians, other anthropologists, other theorists, but also grounding it in really interesting ethnographic fieldwork. And so that fieldwork that you bring up um, in these early chapters of the book is fieldwork that you did at Guy's Hospital. Am I pronouncing that correctly? That's right, yeah. Okay, so Guy's Hospital in London. And you talk about a particular feature of um, this uh, specific space, which is the hole in the wall and the division of labor that ter- that um, happens through this hole in the wall. So for listeners, um, can you introduce this for us? What's going on at Guy's Hospital in London? What is this hole in the wall and how is this central to the work you're doing in this early part of the book? Well, one of the interesting things that happened with in vitro fertilization, of course, is that the ability to observe, to manipulate, and to um, experiment with human embryos has led to a great deal more understanding of um, biological development and how it can be, as it were, taken in hand. Um, And over the course of the same period that IVF became much more um, popular, much more widespread, much more normal, um, there have been a corresponding set of changes in how um, human and other mammalian embryos are understood. And, And some of the most dramatic of these changes happened at the end of the 20th century when for example, it became clear that it was possible to reverse developmental time and that you could, um, as it were, reprogram a cell to go back to um, a quasi-embryonic state and that this um, harnessing of cellular potential could lead to all sorts of new applications for um, human health and, and other kinds of basic science. Um, so, you know, the relationship between in vitro fertilization and basic developmental biology became, as it were, much more intimate. Um, And reflecting this was the effort to build stem cell labs that would be adjacent to IVF clinics um, so that an egg that was going to be used for IVF um, could go straight into a very, very... um, high quality research facility and it could then either come back out of that facility to be used clinically um, for embryo transfer or if there were some eggs or embryos that weren't going to be used for treatment which there usually are because there's usually more um, eggs and embryos if you get to that stage of IVF they could either be frozen or they could be donated to research. So the hole in the wall is the literal hatch through which eggs and embryos go back and forth between IVF and stem cell derivation. Um, And I've referred to this as the IVF stem cell interface. And, And that 
intimacy between those two spheres, between the basic science and the clinical applications, is again um, part of the way that IVF has become a kind of platform, or as I call it, a STEM technology for the development of other tools. Because a cultivated human embryonic stem cell line is now itself a kind of diagnostic apparatus, a kind of model system, a kind of instrumental part of the laboratory experience and the laboratory investigation. Um, and, you know, people in science studies will be particularly um, uh, fluent in the literature that, that addresses these sorts of changes. Um, but to see them happening, um, you know, at the level of architecture that's been built to facilitate the looping of embryos from assisted conception into stem cell derivation back again is a very, very interesting kind of moment in the history of technology, um, a very interesting place to stop and consider what kinds of technological change are occurring here and how do we understand them? How do we create um, appropriate languages to describe what's going on? Uh, I'm a big fan of actually going and looking <laughs> when you want to understand something and talking to people. And I'm very, very grateful to the team at Guys who I've worked with since the late 1990s. Um, for having introduced me to so many techniques and um, explanations, and they've been enormously generous with their time, um, which I've really, really appreciated because um, I think it's a very, very important way to learn um, to actually go and see for yourself. Um, I mean, it's not very easy. Obviously, you have to be reasonably determined to make that happen. But if you are determined, and if it is what you're doing as your research, then the people who you're working with are usually very appreciative of that because you're taking the time to go find out what they're doing and find out why they're doing that instead of something else. And one of the, um, I'll just mention for listeners, um, just again, to put another point on it, um, actually no pun intended, before we move on to what's going on um, in the later chapters, but the importance of handicraft production and hand-based work um, is really, really striking here. And it's one of the many, many ways that hands are really um, at the center of what's happening throughout this book in a way that really um, surprised me and was also really fascinating. So as we move into the later chapters, chapter three in particular, other forms of discourse um, come up that have also been central to understanding IVF and the kind of work that IVF does. And chapter three looks specifically at the language of the frontier and the language of pioneering on the frontier. So the trope of the pioneer has been really central to understanding the work of IVF. And this comes up in the context, as I've mentioned, of the discussion of IVF in terms of of a reproductive frontier. And so this chapter traces this frontier idiom, especially insofar as it informs a way to think about biology and technology um, and their co-creation in this context. So can you talk about that for a bit? How and why has the trope or the frontier been such a compelling way to understand and to talk about IVF? Yeah, well, 
as you mentioned, there's a number of themes that sort of run through the book. Um, and one of them is this notion of craft and making and what it means to be crafting and making um, tools, you know, out of um, human cells and also what it means to be crafting and making identities um, and whether IVF is really as much a way of crafting an identity as it is of, of crafting a cell. Um, and this idiom of the frontier is another one of the themes in part for the simple reason that um, IVF and stem cell research are frequently described as frontier technologies. And so I want to talk a little bit about the origin of that idiom for science. Where does it come from, that idea of the frontier? And I write a little bit about um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt and his introduction of the idea of the frontier and um, his idea of a transfer of the um, sciences of war into the um, pursuit of improved human health um, and and how he drew on the specifically new world model of the American frontier um, and that's an idea very much of the frontier line advancing as it were forward um, quite different from the European idea of the frontier which is a border between two states and I wanted to contrast that sort of narrative um, model of the frontier as a space of scientific advance with what people are actually doing in a lab and specifically what they're often doing with their cells, um, with their equipment, um, with their um, space, which is really much less like marching forward into an unknown frontier and is really much more like almost groping and feeling and touching and trying to see, you know, what's around you. Um, and in the space between these two models of the frontier, this gap, as it were, between the frontier as a, as a place that becomes a place of settlement, a place that becomes a place that's behind you, um, and the reality of the frontier going forward, which is much more like um, being in a dark room and not really being able to see anything, um, I wanted to, to ask a question about what this idiom of the frontier is doing exactly. What is it describing exactly? Um, it's what we might call a very ambivalent analogy. And ambivalence is another of the themes in the book because the ambivalent relationship we have to technology in general is very linked to the ambivalent space of the frontier, I suggest. And so again, you know, we can, this is a theme, you know, a very old theme in the study of technology that we can see in a slightly different light when we look at in vitro fertilization, when we take that as a case study. Um, and this question of, you know, where is it headed and, you know, what does it mean and how would we know? We have to ask the people who are, as it were, on the frontier, the people who are undergoing these treatments, the people who are working with um, stem cell lines, you know, you have to ask them, where do they think we're going? What, what is this all about? And we get some very interesting answers and we get very ambivalent answers. We don't get simple, confident answers, you know. I mean, okay, there's a kind of newspaper version of what stem cells are about, but if you talk to serious people who are doing serious work in labs, there's a number of different equivocal feelings people have about what they're doing. And that 
that's the place we need to go if we want to have a more intelligent conversation about technology. I think that's the place we have to go if we want to have a more open, a more sophisticated, a more nuanced, a more attentive um, discussion about technology rather than just throwing around all these cliches. And this, um, I was going to ask you about this a little bit later on, but since it's just come up, this trope of, not just trope, but the but ambivalence as a tool to understand what's happening here is really, really important for the book. And you're talking about this also later on in the book in the context of a kind of genealogy of work that gets us to understanding the kinds of terms in which you're putting IVF um, in this study. Why do you think ambivalence is so generative in this context? Because you're using it in a very specific way. And it's not just, I mean, it, the way that, at least, again, from my perspective, it emerges in the book is not just as a, oh yeah, it's also, you know, it's ambivalent, you know, like lots of things are. Ambivalence is really kind of key um, to understanding why IVF becomes shaped the way it is um, in, in the way you're presenting it here. So what is what is so important and generative about this ambiv- uh, ambivalence here? In the yeah, well, I mean, there's, there's lots of ways it's important in it too, um, like hope, um, like some other, like curiosity really, um, like some other emotions um, or feelings is an under-theorized area. Um, I, I wanted on the one hand to point to the way that kinship um, has been described as a very deeply ambivalent um, set of relations. Um, and this is implicit in a lot of the anthropological literature on kinship and kin ties and kin formation, but it's an argument that's made very explicitly by the anthropologist Michael Pellets, who argues um, a bit like Raymond Williams says about technology, he argues that ambivalence is a very poorly understood aspect of kinship relations and yet one of the most ubiquitous and self-evident aspects of kinship relations. So I wanted to use that to open up the question of um, having children, having biological children, creating biological relatives. I wanted to trouble slightly the um, self-evident quality of the desire to have children. Um, I wanted to point to the way that IVF doesn't respond to a simple desire to have children. It responds to many, many other things in addition to that. Um, It responds to the need people feel who want children but don't have them to do a kind of um, life repair or identity repair um, to get out of a situation where they feel they're stuck, they um, aren't moving in the direction they want to be moving in, etc., etc. And often, um, and somewhat paradoxically, IVF can appear as a way to do something, to attempt to resolve the difficulties felt when there's unwanted childlessness. And I wanted to look at the way that IVF can respond to a desire for children at so many different levels and and to ask whether that's one of the reasons that IVF 
is so popular despite the fact that it mostly fails. Because one of the most interesting things about in vitro fertilization is why it has become so popular and so widespread, given the fact that it still fails for most people most of the time. Um, there, there have to be things about IVF that appeal in addition to its um, potential to to enable the birth of biological offspring if people want it so much, despite the fact that it usually doesn't do that. Um, so I wanted to, to use ambivalence as a way in to that question. And then I, I also just wanted to, to use it as a way to think about technology. It's, of course, quite a well-established way to think about technology. Um, but IVF is kind of a new context in which to raise that question about technological ambivalence and, and to link it in, in some ways to the ambivalence of certain core aspects of identity, including um, reproductive identity, gender identity, kinship identity, and so forth. Great. And actually, a couple of the chapters actually um, go into different aspects of this question of what is IVF producing above and beyond offspring, right? Because if the success rate is relatively low, why do people do it? And you talk um, here in various points of the book about the quest itself, right, being a product of this, like a kind of public performance of the IVF quest as being just as much a product that comes out of this, the sort of um, gender heroic performance that comes out of the the quest. Um, And so again, just like um, the terminology and the rubric and the concepts of the frontier and the pioneer, we have here um, in a really important way the notions of a quest and of a performance and a public performance of identity that become really integral to understanding the kind of work that IVF is doing as a technology producing identity. So that's another really interesting aspect of this part of the book. So you talk at various points also um, in this part of the book, especially the second half, of the idea of kinship as a technology. So earlier in the book, um, you're exploring new forms of kinship that are produced by IVF and that are producing IVF in turn um, and are looking at or are as I read this, urging us to think about reproduction and kinship not as already given, but as um, sort of need as things that need to be produced um, through social relations and other forms of relationality. Now, in thinking about kinship as a technology and in thinking in this way, the book is not just changing the way we think of um, biology and the way we think of kinship and reproduction and sex. It's also changing in an important way how we think about and how we define technology. So can you talk a little bit about that? How does this um, sort of inform the way we ought to, can, should, might conceive of technology itself in a way that's different than we might have before we came to this book, and certainly the the middle part of this book in particular? Yeah, well, um, if you... um want to ask the question, you know, how did the human embryo become a tool? And you want to ask that question from the point of view of, and what does that have to do with gender as a technology? Um, It's quite instructive to go back to the very same period during which IVF has become so naturalized and normalized and look at the theories of gender and kinship as technologies that that have been developed um, during that period. And um, 
So one of the things I wanted the book to do is to provide almost a kind of meta-review of the ethnography of IVF, but in the context of the history of um, theorizing gender as a technology. Um, and when we use the expression technologies of gender, um, an expression that was um, introduced by Teresa Delortis and by Judith Butler um, in the 1980s, we want to um, really be thinking about um, what they meant about where gender comes from. And their point was that we can't assume that gender is just there as a consequence of sex. We have to really, in a way, assume the other way around that our ideas of sex, of sex polarity, of sex difference and so forth are deeply gendered and they belong to a system that produces sex in a particular way. Um, if we want to think of sex, gender, kinship and so forth almost as a kind of grammar, um, kind of structural grammar, then it gives us a very interesting set of resources with which to think about what IVF is appealing to exactly. Um, you know, it's a, it's a very ambitious question. Um, in some ways, I really felt like it was a kind of impossible question. Um, but it was sort of also an irresistible question. <laughs> <laughs> which is the trouble that we get into us academics, you know. Um, if you think about it too much, the next thing you know, <laughs> you're going to have to write another chapter. Um, anyway, so, yeah, so I, I ended up writing um, a very important chapter, chapter four, about the history of the idea of gender <clears throat> as a technology and what that, perspective on technology might help us to understand about reproductive technology, technologies of reproduction. Now, chapter five also, um, strictly in the interest of time, I won't ask you to talk too much about it, but I just want to mention for mm -hmm. listeners, um, this is another really great way into feminist debates over new reproductive technology, specifically in the 1980s. We've already talked a little bit about the notion of ambivalence um, being key to um, what's going on here, and this is something that comes up um, as a focal point of this chapter, but you're also um, showing us in this chapter the way the history and texture of these debates sort of moves to a turn to understanding the kind of experience or voice of women undergoing IVF is an important part of this conversation. And you talk about um, your own kind of autobiographical elements of this story and your own experience working with a particular group um, that's part of this story. And this brings us into, um, in, in a nice way, I think, the last chapters of the book, because it's turned toward looking at experience of people undergoing these um uh, these experience, these technologies undergoing these sorts of transformations from the perspective of patients of IVF is also very much part of a larger theme, perhaps, of the last part of the book that asks us to think about IVF in terms of a, in terms of a lived experience. Right? It's not just the people in the laboratories or in the clinics who are um, doing the research who are an important part of the story. It's also part of a larger way of life that incorporates lots of different people engaging in lots and lots of different ways um, with these technologies, with these forms of being. And so one of the important themes um, through which we see this in the second part of the book, or uh, rather in the la later chapters of the book, is the theme of visuality. Um, images and visuality and visualizing this becomes really, really important. 
in the second half of chapter six, you're looking at, among other things, at the visual cultures of IVF. At IVF is a kind of iconic technology in visual terms, and it offers a visual analysis of sort of screen-based handheld iconography of IVF. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that? Because that's a really striking part of the book. The emergence of IVF as a, as a visual trope and the kind of work that that does um, for the larger argument that you're making here? Yeah, well, um, I want to use the visual culture of IVF in sort of two different ways in those chapters in the second part of the book. Um, I mean, I, I want to argue in the chapter that you mentioned about the history of feminist debate about this area that it was really a very substantial debate. I mean, throughout the 1980s, there were hundreds and hundreds of books and articles written by feminists about reproductive technology. And I, I want to link the idea of ambivalence also to the idea of dialogue and to the idea of a conversation and to the question of what kind of conversation, what kind of consultation, um, what kind of public debate do we want to be having about reproduction going forward. And I think uh, I want to use the visual culture of IVF because it has become so widespread. You know, it's become something um, people recognize. And when they see an image of microinjection on the evening news, when they see um, this enlarged picture of an egg cell, you know, that's being held by a large holding pipette on one side and, and is being um, pierced by an injection pipette on the other. And when we see these kind of live action um, images of, of microinjection, of ICSI, of somatic cell nuclear transfer, all the different ways in which we get the image from the micro manipulation machine, we're getting a very explicit um, representation of change in how reproduction occurs. It's, it couldn't be a more explicit image of the relationship of biology and technology. It couldn't be a more explicit image of the handheld nature of that um, coupling, as it were. And so um, I wanted to engage with that imagery and use it to ask some questions about how IVF has become a, a much more widespread symbol, not just a much more widespread practice, but a much more widespread image that represents what we might call the age of biological control or the age of reproductive control. Um, but against that kind of um, what you might call dominant, you know, um, even hegemonic image of um, biology being taken in hand, you know, biology being um, technologically manipulated with all of the ambivalence that may accompany that image. I also wanted to look at um, a different set of images by this artist, um, Gina Glover, who um, did the cover of the book, really beautiful image of um, chromosomes on the cover of the book. Um, and she did all this artwork in an IVF clinic. So I wanted to sort of contrast um, what we might call a sort of mainstream, popular image of biotechnical manipulation of reproductive cells with the um, equally powerful but more um, alternative imagery of an artist who was trying to 
represent the lived experience, the lived ambivalence often of going through an IVF um, program. And I wanted to bring that in in the second part of the book to, to revisit the exact same questions I was asking in the first part of the book, but just to do it um, through looking, you know, through through looking at these images and to ask, um, you know, how do we understand what we see? How do we understand the spectacle? What's the point of view? Um, what are we being shown? How do we interpret how we're being shown? I, th- I think they're sort of useful questions to to stimulate um, a dialogue, a more a more um, thoughtful dialogue in some ways than I think we've had about something like IVF. And I'm so glad that you brought up the work of of Gina Glover because I was going to definitely ask you about that next. So this is something that takes up and ah, we can hear the dulcet towns or dulcet tunes of construction work off in the horizon over here. So let's just integrate that into the way we're thinking. And an appropriate appropriate technological background. Exactly. Technology comes into our conversation here. I'll just Ah, there we go. So chapter seven really explores the work of this fascinating artist in detail and integrates this into the other um, elements of the conversation that you're giving us in the other chapters of the book. So as you've mentioned, um, the work of Gina Glover is, is featured on the cover of the book, and you describe her work as artist in residence at an IVF center. And one of the really important things about this that you, at least again, um, from my perspective that you're bringing out in discussing her work is it's not just kind of a, a superficial now let's look at art right this is a um, her work is part of an exhibit the art of art that's um, that the clinic has decided to make part of their space and is really as you describe it part of how the clinic understands its work is through these the production of this kind of visual imagery so it's an important part of the work of the clinic um, that we're understanding through the work of this artist now the um, cover image of the book is from one of the pieces that you talk about in this chapter. And this is a piece called Chromosome Socks. So they're chromosomes, but also chromosomes that are rendered in a in a very particular way that evokes this larger theme of tools and instruments um, and their engagement with bodies that we see coming up throughout the book. Because the chromosomes um, that are being positioned on the cover are actually stripy socks. Um, And they're stripy socks that were donated, or some of them were at least donated by geneticists she was working with. Is that right? Yes. Okay. So can you describe um, this piece for us, at least um, part of it, in the way that speaks to the larger arguments that you're making in the book? Because I think this is um, a really great set piece to help listeners understand the ways that um, visual arts and the production of visual art by this particular artist um, specifically really opens up some of the conversations that you're having um, about IVF in the book. Well, um, this is, as you say, a book that's very concerned with craft and technique um, and how we understand technology. And so, of course, it's a book that has to ask and explore its own craft and technique and technology. And as academics, as writers, as thinkers, um, as scholars, of course, we are also craft workers in many ways. We are very um, much a part of a received um, kinship in some ways of technique. Um, Citational practice is something that 
I think is probably at the heart of the academic scholarly um, tradition. And I definitely want my citational practice in this book to be doing a particular kind of craft work. Um, and when I when I met Gina Glover, what was really, really interesting was that I recognized so much of what I value about my own craft um, in her work, because she was sort of like an ethnographer um, doing her um, residence in hospitals. And she was trying to learn how she could use artistic imagery, photography in her case, um, as a kind of interface between the people working in the lab, the people working in the clinic, the people coming to the clinics and the wider um, world as it were. Um, and she talked about how, you know, she failed um, initially to make images that um, really worked for the people she was working with and how she ultimately was able to devise a visual language that relied in part on imitation. And so her image from Zone Socks is an imitation of a karyotype, but it's a very um, wry and um, clever imitation of a karyotype because it's clearly an artist's representation of a karyotype and indeed an artist's commentary on a karyotype. And so what it does is it sort of plays with the karyotype image by using socks instead of chromosomes, by um, positioning them so they look just like they would on the grid of a karyotype that's made by a geneticist. But they kind of tweak that image as well. And they add into it other elements that are implied by a karyotype, for example, it's a karyotype of a person who's related to other people. It's a karyotype of a person who's being diagnosed for something. And so, for example, this domestic idiom of the socks, um, the familial idiom of the um, socks that were gifted to her by the geneticists, adds another layer of understanding to um, how we view something that's often received as quite a technical part of a medical diagnosis. Um, and she used the same technique in the art of ART. Um, she would um, draw on her relationships with people in the clinic to gather materials that she could then use to um, speak back to the experience she was attempting to represent. Um, and so um, she uses a number of different visual, you could call them puns, I think, but maybe that's not quite getting the um, richness of her imagery. Um, they're playing on the meanings of things in a way that open up other ways of thinking about them as artists often do. And so towards the end of the book, I go through a number of the images that she produced for this clinic as a way, again, of, of revisiting um, the question of craft, um, revisiting the question of dialogue, revisiting the question of representation, and also revisiting the question of the frontier because she's made this art, as you mentioned, in the waiting room, in actually all the rooms 
of the IVF clinic and for that matter in parts of the laboratory so it is in a way frontier art it is art that surrounds this um, intersection between basic science and clinical medicine in the context of reproduction Fabulous. And from the perspective of somebody who picks up the book as well, seeing this chromosome socks piece on the cover, it gives, before you even open the book, it gives the reader um, immediately the experience of this making strange that you um, mentioned at the very beginning of our conversation. Because at least for me and in my household, people who have seen the cover of this book, you look at it quickly and you think, oh, there are chromosomes on the on the cover. It's karyotype. And then you look again and you think, oh my goodness, they're socks. What's going on there? And so it's this wonderful, sort of also pleasurable um, experience of curiosity of what's going on here of strangeness that I think really sets the visual or visually sets a tone um, that's going to recur throughout the book. So it's a, a really a brilliant choice for the cover of the book. I think it works really well. And I, I highly urge listeners um, to definitely pay special attention to chapter seven because the work of Gina Glover is just so, such an interesting um so interesting, as you mentioned, put in dialogue with the work that you're doing um, elsewhere in the book and your own work um, as part of this project. So there's also a chapter, I won't ask you too much about this again, purely in the interest of time, but chapter eight functions as a kind of conclusion for the book. This chapter rereads and sort of recovers some of the arguments um, that we've seen in previous chapters by engaging ideas first from Plato and then um, working from Plato into Derrida. Um, so it really uses some of the ideas and work of Derrida to rethink some of the points that you're making in the book. You're also talking in this chapter, again, about the importance of dialogue as a kind of contact zone, right? And so contact zone also comes up um, repeatedly in the book as a term um, that we are using to think through these ideas with. And also you consider um, in this chapter of the book how ideas um, specifically, how some ideas of kinship have been revised to take into account new forms of relationship, of relationality, of relativity that have been produced by IVF technology and by um, the use of mitochondrial DNA technology um, in particular. So, Sarah, there's a ton of material in the book that we don't have a chance to talk about in detail. It's extraordinarily rich, and I think even if we had two more hours, we would still not exhaust um, what's in here. It's, it's a really, really wonderful and wonderfully rich study. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners, and especially perhaps for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book? Uh, well, I suppose the one thing I would want to say um, in closing is that, you know, it is a feminist book and it is, among other things, um, an attempt to really look back at the history of feminist scholarship on technology and, and in particular on IVF and to suggest that um, that is possibly an underutilized um, scholarly um, tradition that we might want to think about it a little bit more carefully um, going forward because because in some ways the history of IVF is now one of the most carefully documented case studies of this um, increasingly intimate relationship between biology and technology um, and in some ways uh, some of the key terms we associate with the study of um, what Ian Wilmot calls the age of biological control are um, 
you know, drawn from Foucault or from um, other theorists who've, who've looked at biology. And, you know, biology was, was an absolutely central concern to so much feminist work right from the very beginning, you know, um, from very, very early on, the questions of biology and technology were absolutely central to feminism. And one of the things I really want the book to do is is to remind us of the richness of that legacy and to try and engage it um, more fully um, and um, use it as a resource going forward. So speaking of um, resources going forward, now that the book is out and congratulations on the book, as I'm sure is abundantly clear, I think it's fabulous and I really, really enjoyed it and also learned a lot from it. What's next for you? Are there any projects that are currently inspiring you? Well, I've been very fortunate to receive quite a bit of research funding over the past couple of years. So I now have a big five-year project set up at Cambridge um, and a terrific team. Um, looking at histories and cultures of IVF, so really extending this um, set of questions that were laid out in the book and trying to investigate them in more detail. Um, and our team is called ReproSoc, so you can go to the website and see the research group on reproductive sociology at Cambridge, um, where we've got lots and lots of um, really exciting things happening. So um, we're blogging and we're tweeting and we're organizing events and publishing things. Um, so we're basically taking this whole project forward um, on a larger scale. So I'm very excited about that. Okay. Repro sock. Yeah, repro sock. Socks again. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, I know we have Gina Glover's on our webpage too. Yeah, I know. It's true. Well, you, 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 where would we be if we couldn't have a few, um, you know, funds included? Exactly. So on, on that note, um, thank you so much, Sarah. It's really been a pleasure. Congratulations and best of luck with repro sock as you move forward. Thank you very much. <laughs> You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for joining us. We'll see you next time.